Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. To start off this season focusing on first-generation or first-in-family students, we sit down today with Latanya Rees-Miles. LT has focused on the first-generation student experience in the United States, both as a researcher and as a practitioner and advises universities around the United States on supporting first-generation students. She is currently the Director of University Partnerships at REAB Education. In this episode, we discuss the definition of first-generation student and mention a couple other definitions used around the world, and LT highlights the trends in the research and practices around this group of students. Hello and welcome to another episode of Thesis. This is our first episode of season two, which is going to be covering first generation or first in family students, also looking at a number of different terms that are used around the world. And I'm really, really excited because we have a wonderful guest with us today. LT is here with us today, uh, Latanya Reese-Miles, and she is what I perceive to be as the first generation student guru in the U.S. (laughs) Uh, She is just so knowledgeable in everything that she's done as a scholar, as a practitioner, uh, working in universities, working adjacent to universities. LT has researched She's witnessed, she's explored the first-generation student experience from many, many angles, particularly in the U.S. I really consider her the expert, so I was absolutely thrilled when she agreed to come onto the podcast because I think that she's just going to provide a fantastic start to this season. A little bit about LT uh, and how we know each other. I've, the very, I've had the very good for- fortune of working with her. It was for far too short of a period of time, but we briefly overlapped at Menlo College. And so it's really great to touch base with you again, LT, in this format and start about uh, and start talking about these themes. So thanks so much for being here today. Oh, Miss Kelly Davis, it's always a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you. That's such a high honor. Um, So I want to ask about you and we will get to uh, allowing you to describe yourself and your journey. But first, I think we should give a brief explanation of what these more broadly accepted terms are, first generation student and also first and family students. What do we mean when we say these terms? Uh, First of all, I want to thank you so much for focusing on this particular topic. It is definitely a nuanced one that perhaps people may not even realize. So I'll offer a common definition, and I know we're going to go and untangle it a bit more. But traditionally, specifically in the U.S., when we are referring to first-generation college or first in the family, we're referring to students whose parents or caregivers have not completed a four-year degree. That's, I think many people would argue, is the most common definition. Now, things are changing and evolving, but I'll just open it up with that one first. Oh, okay, great. Thank you so much for providing these definitions for us. Um, Yes, the generally accepted terms, and we are going to dig into those nuances, not just in this episode, but in the season, which I'm, I'm really excited about. But now that we've gotten that, the general definitions out of the way, please tell us about yourself and why this topic is important to you. Well, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but interestingly, I identify as a first-generation college student. However, I didn't know that I was first-gen for a really long time, and I think that's part of what you'll likely be unpacking this season as well. So I knew I was the first in my family to go to a four-year, in my immediate family, to go to a four-year institution. I'm from the Washington, D.C. area, a suburb, Alexandria, Virginia. My father 
graduated from high school. And by the time I had started applying for college myself, my mother had taken some community college classes, but I was in my family among my cousins and all that. I was the first and actually the only to complete a four-year degree outside of my mother who went back to school later. But like I said, I mean, I knew, I understood my family circumstances, but it wasn't until I was in graduate school in a doctoral program when someone uh, who's now a really good friend of mine said, LT, you know, your first gen, right? I'm like, what? So there, there can be a kind of a lag or a lapse between sort of understanding your own experience and then connecting with that identity. So that it was like a a multi-step process for me. So once I heard that term and understood that there were other people who shared that identity, then so many things about my life and my experience in college and beyond made a lot more sense for me. And I think one of the pieces of that is that if you're not hearing the term, you don't even know it exists sometimes. Exactly. You don't know what you don't know. And I think that that's one of the core pieces of understanding. I could be wrong here, of course, but that my understanding of when we try to understand the experiences of first generation students is that there are so many things that are unknown that those of us who are not first gen implicitly know and we don't even realize it. Um, so, I think, so I think it's, it's a little bit meta, your experience. In a way, I'd love to go over the history, so to speak, of first generation students in the United States. To me, it feels that first generation students have recently become a group that universities are really trying to focus on when it comes to providing support. But I've also realized that there are a lot of things that just because I've been in the field a shorter period of time, I'm going, oh, they've been talking about this for decades. But I mean, is that true? Is this something that has been really gaining more attention? Or what is kind of the historical, I guess, focus and general history of first generation students? Sure. And I'll probably go chronologically backwards. I'm going to affirm your observation that there's definitely a lot more attention on first-generation students. I would say probably since 2015 or so is when you'll see organizations like NASPA, which is a national organization in the United States focused on the student affairs profession. They started focusing on it, starting to see more conferences that are specifically about that identity. The National Center for First Generation Student Success was established. So definitely a lot more open conversation. Michelle Obama is probably our most visible icon of first genness because she actually uses that language saying that she was a first-generation student. So you're seeing more of that. But all of these programs and initiatives, et cetera, are really standing on the shoulders of some programs that, that started in the 1960s with the Higher Education Act under President Lyndon Johnson. And under his administration, there were a number of what we uh, call TRIO programs, T-R-I-O, federally funded here in the United States that were focusing on first generation. So actually, first generation is a term that was started back in the 60s, but there were programs like Upward Bound, the McNair Scholars Program, Student Success, and in order for students to be eligible for these programs, they had to be low-income, first-generation, or underrepresented. 
And so we must acknowledge that the definition started with those programs, but we're seeing a lot more, like like you see, much more explicit t-shirts and you know <laughs> buttons and things like that. And then the last thing I'll say, because you said, oh, historically, is that we also want to acknowledge that, you know, first-gen students aren't new to college campuses, right? But for the most part, people just weren't identifying them as a group or calling them first generation. So even someone like Thomas Jefferson would technically be considered first generation. And why is that unique? You might say, oh, all those guys were first generation. That's not true. The history of American education is founded on that very small class of people had access and they just you know, just replicated itself. So Thomas Jefferson's father had no formal education and wanted his son to go on to school. And that wasn't true of all of his contemporaries. So there's a long history of this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we're talking pre-1775 even, there were institutions, but the the rate of people who were actually attending college was so small. I mean, I think it was, what, 1% of white men or something like that. Um, I haven't brushed up on my historical numbers recently, but it was tiny and it wasn't until really the turn of the the 19th of the 20th century that it picked up a bit. And actually, I'm glad you that you brought up 1965. I didn't know that. And I think that it's that that's when first generation as a term was kind of coined or when they started referring to a certain group that way. And that was a time of really big expansion. So I don't know if you have all the details on this, but I guess I'm just thinking about how how many of the students at that time were actually who are attending or starting to attend were actually first generation. Was it a really big number? Because we had this is embarrassing. I'm I'm blanking on you know the act that if you work in the army you can get oh, can uh, get the, uh, yeah the GI, GI bill. bill. Okay, there it is. <laughs> Saved myself almost. <laughs> but it, so were there a lot of first generation students at that time, or did we still see kind of? I mean, we see a lot of this today still. This churn of the same people whose families have gone to school just for a long time are the ones attending. These are good questions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let the folks know I've picked up on higher ed history, but certainly don't consider myself a higher ed historian. But what I do know is that GI Bill that you referred to, which came out of World War II. So prior to the Civil Rights Act, so we're talking about in the 1940s. My understanding is that that GI Bill actually did open the doorway to a lot of folks who were first generation for sure. It's a really good question about how much the gap has widened since then. It seems to me like the percentage is still the same, <laughs> but demographics may have changed. That GI Bill primarily impacted white men. And so, like I said, that increased the percentage, but the percentage to me still seems pretty consistent. It's about 30%. Well, and again, it depends on how you define it as well. Do you mind giving us maybe an, a snapshot of what the demographics are now, since you mentioned that, yeah, the GI Bill primarily impacted white men? And it's first-generation students now are made up of a different demographic. There's still some white men in there, for sure. There are definitely still white men there. And a, a critical mass of first-generation students are students of color. But the reality is that 
first-gen status crosses racial and ethnic lines. A number of first-gen students tend to identify as low-income, but not always, right? And so we have to just be careful and not make assumptions that a low-income Latinx student is also first-gen. That's not necessarily the case. Could be the case, but maybe not. But generally speaking, first-gen students tend to identify also as a person of color, and there often is a strong correlation um, to income levels as well. But again, I also want to point out that you will find first-generation students that actually come from middle class or higher backgrounds as well. I like to use Le LeBron James as, a, as an example. His family, LeBron James, we all know, did not go to college, but his sons and his, well, his sons and his daughter will be first-generation college students. LeBron James is a millionaire, a billionaire, so his children would not be considered low income, but absolutely would be considered first-generation to college, and we need to value that experience as well. That's a kind of a perfect segue, the word experience. To what are some of the experience of first-generation students that we as either scholars or those working in universities, other students, as first-generation students, the general public, what are some of those experiences that we should be most concerned about? Thanks for that that question, Kelly. And I, I just want to clarify that I take a, a very strengths-based approach when talking about first-generation students, and I'm going to contrast that with a deficit approach, which is to say, oh, these students don't know things and they lack things and we have to help them and support them. So a more affirming way to think about first-gen identity is, number one, to acknowledge that institutions have like you and I just described, actually have not been built for this for these populations, right? Like, like you were saying, it was like the the wealthy classes, you know, like one percent. That that's what Harvard was built for. <laughs> then that also explains some of the intersection between class and and first gen status. But the reality is that while these students may not come to uh, these campuses knowing a lot about college, they do know about a lot about other things. But let's 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 break that down for a moment. What does it mean to not know what to expect from college? Like, why is that a problem? Or what if you don't have a history of going to college? Well, just on a general basis, you're not going to have the, a full experience of the institution. Many students carry with them either the hope of the family, like, oh, wow, you're the one who made it, you know? And when you have that kind of hope and expectation, that's going to shape the way you think about your major, the way you think about career, because you're not just going to school for yourself. Now, like, if you're the great hope of the family, then so many of your decisions feel, uh, feel weightier and different than if, you know, when I look at my own children who are you know, went to college to explore their passions and their interests. Sometimes, many times when folks are first in the family to go to college, they're thinking about, I have to bring my whole family out of a situation or I'm going to go back and help my neighborhood. I'm going to help the race. It, it, it just carries with it. It's a different impact for sure. And then I'll mention the hidden curriculum and pause after that. But it's this idea of not knowing what you don't know. And so on the face of things, you would say, oh, I can go on a website and, and navigate college. Well, so much about the experience of college is not something that anyone has put on a website. <laughs> you have to have some exposure to it. What do you expect when you go to orientation, for example? Should my family come? 
or should my family drop me off? What do I need to bring? Can I put things on the wall? A lot of these things are not said explicitly. And so if you're someone who's never experienced this before and you're confronted with all these new things, it could, your confidence can take a hit. You may be less likely to ask for help actually, you know, cause you don't want to be embarrassed. So these are some of the, these are some of the, the common experiences for first generation students. It's not all bad, but I just want to bring, I just, I did want to raise some of the, the barriers that can come. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that some of that has been reflected in some of the reading that we on the podcast have been doing and that I think is going to come out uh, as maybe a very common factor in different parts of the world, which is also very interesting. You know, that feeling of when you didn't know someone and you feel kind of found out uh, like, oh, wow, I, f- I feel like I should have known that and it can be a bit demoralizing, but but we can rise above it as individuals. And also there are people out there who are trying to help us in these spaces. So what are some of the things, I mean, there's so many things that universities can do to help this group of students uh, and support them. But what what are some of the trends that are that you're seeing right now? Well, number one, it actually part of it has to do with the definition. And so if you want to serve those students, it's important to clarify and explain to them what is the definition that you're using and define it often. Because I've found in my research and in my experience, oftentimes a student finds out that they're first generation at their institution itself. And so the schools have to say, this is what we mean. And this is why we want you to come to this workshop or this panel or the summer program or this class or, or what have you. That's number one. Number two is providing opportunities for these students to find one another and build community. It could be in a classroom space. It could be in a physical space. It could be in an online platform, but there's got to be some way for other students to find someone else who shares their, their background. And then the third thing I'll mention is also identifying other players on campus who share that background and are supportive. Of course, that could be faculty, staff, administrators. I've even written about the role that campus service workers play in supporting first-generation students. They themselves may not be first-gen, but we we find that many first-gen students gravitate towards the campus facilities workers, the cafeterias, support staff, housekeepers, because they're often seen as less threatening, but very helpful and supportive as well. So the campus really needs to welcome and and embrace these students. Thinking about all of these three different areas that you've just mentioned, where are some areas where you're seeing gaps? What do you think we need more of in universities and by way of support? I love how you think in terms of trends. Uh, (laughs) um, One of the things I think we need to do now, now that we're in this era of saying, okay, we're celebrating first-generation students, which is awesome, is now starting to think about some intersectional identities and moving away from sort of one what is it? One size fits all models. Like it's fine to have some generic, you know, orientations or things like that or welcome nights. But then now let's start breaking it down. One of the things that I started moving toward when I was at UCLA was first gen status within specific academic majors and disciplines. Because let me tell you, it's really different going to college and telling your family I'm majoring in biology versus being an English major. <laughs> or a dance major. Often because, again, families' perceptions of schools are like shaped by media and television and they can see doctors on TV and they're like, uh, what are you going to do with that English major? Teach, you know, <laughs> or, or what have you. But really unpacking what that identity means 
within academic disciplines or the other work I do is looking at the intersection of Blackness, Black students who are first-gen. So there's an opportunity to look at race and ethnicity. We could look at first-gen student athletes, for example. So now it's time to get even more granular about how the experience is intersecting with other identities for students. I, I think that's the next wave that needs to happen with first-gen students on campuses. Do you think that that is also an area where maybe there needs to be more research or are you seeing a lot of research in that area no. and it just needs to move? <laughs> there, <Okay>. definitely <laughs> no. needs to, there definitely needs to be more research in that area. I think the most common one, the go-to right now is looking at Latinx students and first gen. Mm-hmm. But the downside to that is that it always assumes that Latinx students are first gen and that's not necessarily the case. So we, there's not enough research on white first gen students, black first gen students or Asian American first gen students. It's, it's a bit imbalanced. Another trend, now that I think about it, another trend I am seeing though, is looking at first gen identity after college. So we're seeing an increase of studying the identity for folks who've gone on to graduate school or professional school or people who are just professionals of overall. There's a lot more interest and conversation about first-gen professionals. That that's a, that's a really hot topic right now. Yeah, it seems to be something that you are very focused on right now just to following what you're doing and it's something that you have on your LinkedIn if I'm not mistaken and uh, oh yeah I do okay. <laughs> um, and you're working for kind of a well do you want to do you want to say a little bit actually about where you work just a brief interlude oh re-up, re-up education um, I'm a, dire- a director of university partnerships and re-up's goal is to help the millions of folks who have some college credit and no degree mm. and Many of the, many, not all, but many of those folks were also first generation college, but life happens, right? And people stop out of school for a number of reasons. I I was a stopout student myself and our goal is to, you know, help them uh, walk alongside them to have, have them complete their degree. And so many of them are what we would consider to be adult learners or non-traditional students because they are not that traditional age. They often are caregivers for someone else, whether it's their own children or you know, like a multi-generational household or, or something like that, or they're working full-time. So that's the, that's the work I've been doing uh, lately. That's right. I think I, I, this is embarrassing. I think I got it mixed up with the last group you were working with, uh, which was more career focused, but I'm going to roll with it. Um, so maybe, is that maybe another? That's not your fault that I changed jobs. <laughs> it was recently too, folks, just <laughs> cut myself a bit of slack there. But, um, but would you say that maybe looking at adult learners, for example, and their first generation, kind of that intersectionality, maybe that's a, is that another place that also requires more attention? Yes, there's very, very little and discussed about so-called adult learners. There's a lot of mis- misperceptions about them, like, oh, they don't want to come back or or what have you. When I described earlier how policies and institutions aren't made for first-gen students, you could say the same thing for adult learners too. So many folks need a lot more flexible schedules. They need to get credit for some life experience that they've gained along the way. And that sort of traditional brick and mortar concept is less and less appealing. You're always going to have people, though, who want to be in person in a classroom, but increasingly we're seeing many people wanting to have remote options or or things like that. 
Okay, so we've talked about kind of all these different areas that need to be researched both in a kind of a scholarly format, but also given more attention in a more practical sense. So I ask, are there other gaps in research that you think need to be addressed? And I just want to say that I, I love that you looked at this other group of staff that does not get looked at in higher education studies in general and how they're, they are so valuable, obviously for many reasons, but I think that this is just kind of adding to, well, you didn't think about this and bringing it to light. So what are what are some other gaps that we need to be looking at in research? Oh my goodness, so many, Kelly. I'll do a little plug here. For two years, I worked on a big project with my colleague, Dr. Amy Baldwin. It was an annotated bibliography about first-gen-ness, <laughs> first-gen students. And we focused on 2008 to 2019. And we, you know, divided it by a number of different topics, right? Career was one of them. Identity was another. Graduate school. And we were disappointed in, in some of the literature because a lot of it was very deficit-based, right? A lot of that literature also, the methodology was very often comparing and contrasting a group of first-gen students to their continuing generation peers. And so we would argue that we need to have some different methodologies, right? We don't always have to compare first-gen students to other groups of students. It's perfectly legitimate to just focus on the first-gen experience and extrapolate from there. We talked about parents and families, for example. People make assumptions that the caregivers of these students are also causing barriers for them. That's not what we found, actually. We found that the students often are very motivated by their families, even if their families don't fully understand the college-going experience. One thing, as you may know, that I'm really excited about is first-generation identity and popular culture, and that would include TV shows or memoirs, podcasts. We're seeing an increase in those, and we're finding a lot of TV shows and and other characters are focusing on first-gen identity. They don't always say first gen, but it is a first gen experience. And so I'm very jazzed about that kind of direction. And we know that there have been a history of first gen characters on TV shows in the United States starting really early on, actually. But again, the language just wasn't there. And we'll be linking to your blog, First Gen and Juice. Absolutely. So go check it out. Do you mind sharing with us maybe one of your favorite, because this is, I have loved hearing about all of this from you. What's one of your favorite kind of pop culture references to the first generation experience? One that I think people should be paying attention to is Mindy Kaling's show, um, Sex Lives of College Girls. And there's a character there, Kimberly. And like they really explore her first-gen identity. It's not glossed over whatsoever. You get a sense of who her parents are, what her background is. She's at this elite institution. And I can remind me to come back to that in a second. She's open about being on scholarship, about not knowing things. And you can see her like fumble around a little bit, right? And make some mistakes in the classroom or not know sort of what's what's going on but she's very resilient at the same time the other thing you see with this character Kimberly is where she does find community and that's working on campus in a coffee shop and her co-workers are other first-gen students like her and I think that's such a um, that's a pretty spot-on representation of a first-gen experience of like where do you find your people she's not she's not like a she's not a tragic character it's just a matter of her figuring things out so that's a really good one to follow, I would say. I think they do a really good job of what that experience is like. 
I haven't watched the show yet, but now you've at least heard it very good for other reasons too. Uh, but Mindy wanted... Kaling owes me. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, she does. She does. Um, uh, but you wanted you wanted me to mention the elite institution piece of it. Yes, thank you for that. I think one of the things that frustrates me is that a lot of the studies about first gens or even the representations about first gens is a lot focused on them at private schools or them at Ivy League or Ivy League type of school. The reality, and while that is important, the reality is that most first-gen students are at regional public schools. That's where the majority of the first-gen population is. The danger of always thinking about them at small private schools is that we're missing out <laughs> on where students really are, and we're not really going to be able to serve them correctly if we're thinking, oh, only first-gen students go to Harvard. Harvard has different resources than Prince George's County Community College, which is majority first-gen. And so I think in many ways, we are overlooking how we can serve first-gen students at a public school, at a two-year school, at a regional school. What does it mean to be first-gen when most of your classmates are first-gen, right? So we continually perpetuate a narrative of a first-gen student working really hard, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, going to Harvard, feeling lonely. You know, that gets told over and over again. So we really need to diversify that representation. I love that. I, th it really frustrates me that so much of, I think, the general U.S. public perception is actually focused on these, you know, top 100, maybe 200 exactly. universities in a place that has, in a country that has 4,000 institutions. So <laughs> that's an Bingo. excellent point. And thank you for bringing that up. It's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible to really get at the core of what, you know, where you can provide support or address issues. You're just looking at the the creme de la creme, so to speak, exactly. kind of feeds us back into that historical loop. But that's the U.S. context. And much of the research on first-generation students comes from the U.S. and is focused on this U.S. context. But we're not just going to be looking at the U.S. because that's uh, we, we expand in, in thesis. In fact, this is our first episode focused on the U.S. We've had my voice, which is from the U.S., but that's it. So we got a little bit of that perspective inevitably. But what are you most curious about to learn about when it comes to first-generation students, first and family? And whichever terms we end up digging into in this season about these this group of students in other countries, what are you most curious about? What are you excited to to learn? Again, I just want to say how excited I am that you are broaching this topic. It's very forward thinking. People aren't paying attention. You're going to blow people's minds. Um, also, <laughs> that annotated bibliography that I mentioned that big that big two year project. One of the things I found and was really pleased to see were the number of scholars outside of the U.S. that were writing about first-gen students. You're right, the U.S. tends to dominate it. But I was coming across literature by folks written in Canada and Australia in particular. And there was some very nuanced conversations about first-gen status, especially around social class as well. And so I would encourage people to look at some of that work. But I do think there's been a lot of U.S. bias, honestly, when it comes to this topic. And so I'm just, I've just always been curious to know how this status is negotiated in other countries. I did a little bit of research because there's not a lot out there, but I did find that, yeah, this term first-generation college is very U.S.-specific. I think first and apparently first in the family is more common outside of the U.S., so I would just love to learn more. I'm just so curious about how 
what does it mean to be first gen anywhere else <laughs> in the world? And what are some of those best practices? Are they the same? Are they similar? There's going to be some things in common. I'm sure community is going to be one of them. But how do family members Per, perceive of their student? What are some of the best practices at these institutions? I'm just, I just want to learn it all. I'm super excited for it. Well, I hope we can deliver. So fingers crossed. Oh, you will. <laughs> Uh, well, LT, this has been a great. I'm going to go ahead and ask uh, our final question, which is a question that we ask all of our guests. And that was, who was someone or was there a specific experience which might have been particularly influential in your higher education journey or in the development of your research on first generation students? I'm going to highlight two individuals. One of them is Professor Tracy Buenavista, who's at Cal State Northridge. She was a graduate student at the time and working for me when she told me that I was a first-gen student. So I always have to give a lot of kudos to Tracy. Tracy also is a scholar of Asian American studies and has done a lot of work on Filipino um, higher education and this concept of 1.5 generation, which is amazing. So shout out to Tracy. And then I want to acknowledge my good, good friend sister, Roshne Jahangir, whose work I admire. Um, she's an amazing scholar. She's at the University of Minnesota. She's just one of the sharpest and smartest people I know. And so she's definitely someone who inspires me regularly. Well, LT, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today um, about first-generation students. I am thrilled that you're kicking off the season. I think it's going to be really interesting and hopefully really informative for a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Kelly. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Professor Sarah O'Shea and Dr. Kylie Austin about first and family students in Australia. Professor O'Shea brings a research perspective on the topic from her abundance of research focusing on these students in Australia and Europe, while Dr. Austin provides a practitioner perspective through her experiences as the Associate Director of Student Equity and Access at the University of Wollongong. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Ayla Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.